Welcome, everybody, back to the Secrets of Story podcast. Oh, it sounds so wonderful. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Great. Let's jump right into it. I think this episode is going to be a big episode because it's going to be addressing a long-standing trauma in Matt Bird's life. Yes. I think every writer has one of these, but yeah, this is my trauma. Do you you want to – I mean, I think we really need to – and also you faced your fear recently I did. I faced my fear. So I had recently written a blog post uh, about – the book, Little Fires Everywhere, I brought up something I had not brought up in many years on the blog, which is that I was signed by Circle of Confusion Management Company based off two scripts, a sci-fi thriller called Nerve and a prestige biopic called The Man Who Won the War, which was a biopic of the British codebreaker and inventor of computing, Alan Turing. Oh man, somebody should make a movie about him. Yeah, right. So then I went ahead and I just sort of tossed off my legend my everybody has their legend their founding myth and i tossed off my founding myth on the blog and i knew when i did it james is going to try to nail me on this james is <laughs> james is not going to let me get away with this but i tossed off my founding myth which is that i had written this Ellen turing screenplay and a lot of people liked it and it got me lots of meetings in hollywood but i kept getting told we can't do it because he's gay no movie starter is going to want to play him if he's gay people just don't want to see a movie about a gay hero what year was and this This was 2004, I want to say. It was a bummer. People love the script. A lot of people love the script. And they nobody wanted to make it. And so then I moved on to the projects. My managers lost interest in the script. After the first couple of meetings, we were getting responses like that. And then one day, about five years later, I see a big new million-dollar screenplay sale for a movie called The Imitation Game. And my heart sunk through my chest because I knew- Being about Alan Turing. I had considered the title, The Imitation Game, for my screenplay and had rejected it. But I knew that The Imitation Game must be a biopic of Alan Turing because that was uh, part of his Turing test was something he called The Imitation Game. And it was every screenwriter's nightmare. A competing project comes out, it sells for a million dollars to a first-time screenwriter, and then it wins the Oscar for Best (laughs) Screenplay. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty pretty brutal. First-time screenwriter, million dollars and an Oscar for Best Screenplay. I could not bring myself to see the movie. I did not see the movie for the next seven years or so. I mean, when did that movie come out? 2014 or so. So the next six years after the movie came out, I couldn't bear to see it. And then finally, after I sort of mentioned in passing on a way to make another point, my founding myth, then James was like, wait just a second. <laughs> wait, stop wait, wait it. Hold I, up. I knew this about you. and You I, knew this. I knew this about you, and I learned not to mention it around you. <laughs> Uh, and and not even to joke about it. And yes. It, it, it's, it's so, and I really tiptoed around it. And you know, dear listener, that if I'm tiptoeing around something <laughs> regards Matt, you know that it's some serious shit. Ixnay <laughs> on the erring tay. Yeah. So, um, so James is like, wait a second. You got to let me read this. It's got to be. And I'm like, James, you just want to shit all over it. And James is like, no, it's got to be good. It got you signed. Like, it has to be good. So uh, go ahead and let me read it. And I was like, okay. And then he read it. And he's I loved like, it's, it. He said it was good. We should talk about it on the podcast and specifically talk about our screenplays better before you learn to write. To what degree do you lose writing ability due to actually knowing how to write a screenplay, which I did not know as well when I wrote this. And then I said, okay, that's a good concept. But then I said, the problem is I'm going to have to go ahead and watch The Imitation Game, which I did. You I had to took face the hit. Your fear. You I faced your fear. my fear. 
It's it's like a yeah. What's what's that Albert Brooks movie? Defending your life. He faces his fear. So I went ahead and watched it. And here's the thing: if Alan Turing was a fictional character, then that is the better movie. It is a very well written movie. It's a very well made movie. It's a very compelling character. They've created a very compelling character that they call Alan Turing. If Alan Turing is a real person, then mine is the better movie. (laughs) I I agree one hundred percent. Uh, I, I having read your screenplay, having seen the Imitation Game when it came out, and then I read the screenplay uh, this past week, and then reread yours, and then looked up uh, various articles about like how it diver- diverged from official history, which is fine, you know, the movies do which that. is fine, and, and yes. yours does it in some cases too, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, um. So I, I, w- I want to talk about that. I want to talk about your screenplay vis-a-vis your screenplay itself. I also want to talk about it in relation to the Imitation Game. And I I, want to, let's get to the bottom of this, but let's let's hear more about your feelings about the imitation game. So, I mean, you know, Oh, oh, wait, one one last thing. We're going to make Matt's screenplay available for you to download so you can read along with it too. So if you want to kind of get the maximum enjoyment out of this episode, stop right now, uh, go watch imitation game, go (laughs) read its screenplay, then go read Matt's screenplay and a couple days from now, (laughs) come back and and, and listen to the rest of this episode. It'll be worth it. You should reshingle your roof, too, because <laughs> if a roof gets too old, it's going to result in problems. So yep. do that, too. And once you've done that, come back and finish this podcast. So I was told, you know, all these years I was like, so in The Founding Myth, I said, oh, I was told we can't do it because he's gay. And then a couple years later, social mores, social, is it social mores? It's, but it's, it's, mores. it's spelled mores, but it's pronounced mores. It's social mores. mores. Yeah. Social mores had changed. This was always my founding myth because I had not seen the imitation game is that, oh, suddenly people were okay with a gay hero five years later. And that's why it had sold or six or seven years later that this screenplay sold. When indeed that had happened, Barack Obama had had his evolution on gay marriage and there had been a tremendous, tremendous cultural shift between 2005 and 2012 in terms of gay people. And I was like, okay, that's why that movie sold. Well, now that I've actually seen the movie, I'm like, no, it sold because he's not fucking gay. (laughs) Well, I, I mean, they acknowledge his homosexuality, but your movie is much gayer. It is a much gayer movie. I wrote a movie as gay as the day is long, and they did not. Yeah, as is, gay as the 4th of July. <laughs> you do not find out that he is gay until an hour into the movie, and it is shown as an entirely negative, awful thing in his life, that he is various points accused of being gay and has to shamefacedly admit it. The police nail him for being gay and he has to and he has to admit it to his shame that his bosses nail him for being gay, his fiance nails him for being gay, and the communists, the Soviet Union even nails him for being gay. Now, this, to put it mildly, never happened in real life. Now, in fact, Alan Turing was an out and proud gay man. His bosses at Bletchley Park found out he was gay when he told them he was gay. His uh-huh. fiance found out he was gay when he told her he was gay before they became engaged. His, the police. Well, let's be fair to the imitation game with, with his, with, with Joan Clark. Like, I think that, that scene has some parallels to your scene in which like he does say to her, at least in the script that I read, because uh, I, I haven't seen the movie in a while, you know, like, well, you know, I'm gay. And she's like, well, yeah, I knew. Yeah. No. And that's in both. That's in both movies. Yeah. But and the reason why he was arrested and for being gay and sentenced to chemical castration, uh, which ultimately led to his suicide, 
is because he told the police he was gay uh-huh. <laughs> and and he didn't think that they would mind. He didn't yeah. think that they were seriously going to enforce the anti-gay laws. Right. And because that was that is what my whole screenplay is about, is that this is a guy who just did not believe in society's rules, who did not understand, could not conceive of society's rules. The other big problem I had with the movie, even bigger problem, I would say, is they cast Benedict Cumberbatch, and Benedict Cumberbatch really only knows how to play one type of character, and that is the brilliant asshole. And uh, here's the thing, that's why that movie sold, because that was very in vogue then. Whether it's Sherlock, whether it's Iron Man, whether it's House, that was a very in vogue character at the time. Not in vogue anymore. The, the, the guy who's like, he's an asshole, but he's brilliant. You might not like him, but he gets results. And because of that, you kind of got to like him. Am I right? You know? Exactly. That is exa- That was very much in vogue at the time, and that's very much what this is. This is very much Alan Turing meets Benedict Cumberbatch's version of Sherlock Holmes. That's canny, though, right? I guess. I mean, I you know, it's a good question because I mean, we've talked about this on this podcast a lot. Is to what degree do people have to be assholes to be compelling characters? At what to what degree do you need conflict in a movie? Well, that's and- hilarious because your script is less. Matt Birdian than the imitation game. In your script, Alan Turing uh, is kind of like often finding common ground with people, uh, working with people as a team, uh, kind of mindful of people's feelings in a way that I always say that I like. And the thing that won the Academy Award is more Matt, what you'd say that people should be, which is aggressive and constantly playing status games and stuff like that. So I don't know, maybe I was wrong all along. And if you had gone that route, you'd be sitting on a million dollars in an Academy Award. Yes, I, that is, it was really remarkable for me to go back and read the script that I wrote 15 years ago that I hadn't read in many, many years, and then to see the imitation game. And yes, like I now know much more about being a professional screenwriter. And one of the things I learned when I learned more about being a professional screenwriter than I knew when I wrote my script, which is called The Band Who Won the War, is that, yeah, you need asshole heroes who are constantly engaged in games of one-upmanship and constant conflict, petty conflict, any conflict. And my Alan Turing is just a ridiculously nice guy because (laughs) Alan Turing was a ridiculously nice guy. He got along great with the other people in HUD 4 where he was working. He was not, you know, (laughs) he just, he just, he got along great. He got along great with a lot of people. He got along great with Joan. He got along great with most of the people in his life. And he was, and it's funny because, you know, you watch, the imitation game and you're like oh right <laughs> that's how i should have written it <laughs> i should have had him i should have had him in constant conflict with people i right. should not have shown i read three biographies of turing in order to write this and there was not a single instant in a single one of those three biographies in which he was anything except for a nice guy and there is not a single instant in my screenplay in which he's anything other than yeah nice and you're, and you're like a shy of, retiring underfoot figure like a lot of sorry sirs a lot of people saying you're a bit <laughs> of a mess turing a lot of him agreeing with others who are speaking at cross purposes to what he wants he's kind of like saint-like um, <laughs> and, and but like the the thing but I, I i mean I, I wonder if that would go over better you know he's kind of like the main character in uh Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, he is. And Eddie, Ray, Eddie, Ray, Eddie Redmayne character, who, I mean, which your script is better than that movie, but that character is a very much shy, underfoot, retiring fellow who is utterly uncompelling. 
Uh, um, the, oh, I wouldn't say that. I find it to be compelling. I think it. I think Eddie that, Redmayne's character in yeah. Oh no, I hate that movie. I think I'm very boring. Uh, um, but we that, that, that's an argument for a different time. Let's let's. We, I think we agree on a lot of stuff today. So let's talk about that. Uh, um, the, and yeah, he's this kind of weird secular saint. And I, I think if you had taken a lot of the advice that I give all the time about like, hey, let's yes and each other or whatever, like it's like I sent my advice backward through time and derailed your career. Uh, no, it's totally true. It's he is he, you know, he was this very nice guy. He was someone who his problems are philosophical in my script. Like definitely one thing that happens in my script is I include his big debate with Ludwig Wittgenstein, which we had transcribed. So I that was largely from the history. Oh, wait record. a second. So I was going to ask about this. Uh, a Turing actually did have this debate with Wittgenstein. Oh, yes. The other students in the class took copious notes, and we have those debates, and that's that was mostly verbatim. It was So Wittgenstein was that much of like a showboater, like taking books, flopping them <laughs> no, on the table? Like, I invented for, that. For those people who haven't uh, read your script, which might be you know 70% of people who are listening to this episode, can you just go – I feel it's a pivotal scene. It's a scene that the imitation game wouldn't dare put in because it's very philosophical. However, I think it goes to the heart of who Turing is. And like I mean, your your script is much more technical, much more concerned with like problems and and how they're technical solutions than the imitation game, which is more about how can Alan Turing relate to people, which you know, admittedly, might be more movie like. But um, <laughs> yes. that you know, like how can I be, become a better manager rather than how do we solve this technical problem? All right, let's start from the beginning. Oh, so oh, it's do, funny. Oh, hold on, do you want me to talk about? Why don't I give some broader points first? Okay. Okay. So All right. I think your script is more complex and literary and accurate to Turing and his problems and his personality. But the mm-hmm. imitation game is more movie-y. Do you yes. agree with that? Oh, I totally agree. Now, the interesting thing is that both you, your script and the, the imitation game script uh, kind of have a similar structure, which is that yes. there's a 1954-era investigator who's trying to ferret out the details of the case. In the imitation game, it's after a break-in at Turing's house. In your script, it's after Turing dies. Um, Dix yes. kind of tells a story in yours just at the beginning and at the end, whereas in The Imitation Game, Turing tells a story. Now, I do yes. think there was a better choice in The Imitation Game to have Turing kind of telling a story because we but need to believe Turing. No, I'm sorry. But Turing never told the story. No, 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 no. That's the whole reason movie. why Turing is the hero he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 know, I know, I know, I know. He's ordered to never tell anyone exactly. what he did. We're, we're, and we're he asked to never told anyone. Right. We're, we're, we're asked to believe Karen and Vest. And you, you do all this work to get us to believe Karen and Vest in Dixon in the first four pages. And you got to do it all over again with Turing. Uh, you know, yes. at, at page five and on. So structurally, they made the better choice. Uh, um, but so the imitation game starts with Alan Turing's voice telling the story and gets us out of the side more quickly. And he's m- much more kind of like, hey, y- you better keep up. This is going to be difficult <laughs> for you to understand, which kind of sets us up for like, oh, this is going to be mathematical. This is going to be very technical, which would have been great for your story, which is very technical and problem solving oriented. Whereas like the imitation game is just about like, how can I be a better manager at, you know, <laughs> at, my, at my shitty job at Verizon? Your script goes through Turing's life blow by blow chronologically. The imitation game did your advice, which is it's about the solving of a large problem, the Enigma yes. machine. Uh, which is and what, it was it was this script that I had in mind when I first coined that advice because ah. that was the something where you know this movie is really not about the solving a large, large problem except for in the most philosophical sense 
And uh-huh. I realized I probably should have just structured that whole movie around breaking the Enigma code, which, and then this movie does a very clever, very sophisticated job of, you know, the movie is structured around the breaking of the Enigma code. And then there's these other two storylines, the 1954 storyline and the 1928 storyline of the first boy he loved who died in 1928 and when he was arrested and chemically castrated in 1954. And it parallels those with most of the movie is about breaking of the enigma code there's uh, a lot of jumping around in time the, yes and, and it's jumping around on time it's very sophisticated it's very well done uh, um so yeah in your script we don't hear about enigma until page 35 or so and the problem yeah. is solved by page 80 something there's 50 more pages however it's because you're using a different structure which we talked about in episode eight yours is not about the solving of a large problem you did the rise and fall narrative like, yes. like we talked about in oh Jedi that's and decline. Oh, you think I use Lord Raglan's structure? Yes, you did. You intuitively <laughs> use Lord Raglan's structure, and I and I want to talk about this more because um. The, so, what is Lord Raglan's structure? Right. So, so you, we have a whole podcast episode about this. You can go back and listen to it. But very briefly, James, a couple of episodes ago, introduced us to this other story guru who everyone forgets about, named Lord Raglan, who said. And, and yes, that there is that there is, you know, the first 11 steps of the hero's journey are the ones we're familiar with. And they're the ones that Joseph Campbell talked about. But then there's the back 11, these the decline and fall steps of the hero's journey. And in all, it, it's really 22 steps and everyone right. forgets about the last 11 steps. So that was what we covered in a previous episode. You should go back and find that. I think it was called Jedi uh, and Decline. It, Jedi it, and this Decline. This is the structure that Hamilton uses and stuff like that. So like at, at step 11 is Victor over a king, giant, dragon, or wild beast marries a princess. I mean, like, you know, he gets Joan Clark, he cracks the enigma, becomes king. But then for a time, he reigns uneventfully. In your script, that's when he's doing the radio uh, debates and stuff like that. Uh, he prescribes laws. You know, he has his own computer that he's working with. And then he later loses favor with gods or his subjects. That's when he gets nabbed for indecency. Driven from throne and city, he loses his security clearance. Meets with mysterious death. That's when he eats a poisoned apple. Often at the top of a hill. Okay, we can. <laughs> <laughs> not that. His children, if any, do not succeed him. Well, he has no no children, no successors. His body is not buried. In this case, I mean, I, we can interpret this to mean he has no visible legacy. You know, yeah. he's, you know, like he, he's never he's not recognized for what he did. But he has one or more holy sepulchers or tom or tombs, and that's the legacy of computers and his mathematical work. You did the Raglan auto <laughs> rank thing, and you didn't even know it. <laughs> You're right. I totally did. I totally did because I was I was not going like how do I impose a movie structure on his life? I was just like how do I just how do I tell this guy's life? How do I tell this uh-huh. true story? This true story from life instead of saying how do I cram this into a movie? Which, you know, I mean, because I got to say first and foremost, the number one thing that is wrong with this movie is it is 131 pages. No, so, wait, wait, wrong with uh, with your script, you mean? The w- number one thing that is wrong with the man and one the war is it's 131 right. pages. And those 11 pages come out real easy. And what would those 11 pages be? Well, I mean, for instance, I really just geeked out over a lot of the history. So I show like 20 different things going wrong with the code breaking at Bletchley Park and solve these problems one by one. And I think each of those scenes is good and fun, but it's just too many things go wrong at Bletchley Park and too many problems they solve. So like, I loved the scene where they were like, okay, we need a new crib in order to break these messages, in order to break the code faster. And they're like, well, wait just a second. If we knew what was being reported in the messages, we could break them faster. So let's go ahead and place one mine in Bachnafjorden, 
Norway. That was brilliant. I, I'm surprised tell- that was not in the imitation game. Oh, it, no way. There's no way that would be in the imitation game or easy. any professional script. But no, but it's easy to understand. You, you know, it's, it's not about like rotors or the or, or crossing wires. It's about like, oh, we place a bomb here. The Germans report it. Therefore, they'll broadcast it and therefore we'll be able to decode it that's very easy to understand well and then the the best thing is you know like the he's giving orders to the british navy and then the british navy is like wait why did you choose how is that a strategic location Bachnafjorden? and he says oh we looked at the place on the map that had the longest name because the longest is name is that what this he did? is true this is true yes that's great that's it's great. great it's great it's a wonderful scene, and it and an imitation game should have done a scene like that. I just really geeked out on the details, and anything I thought I could make a good scene out of, and I do make a good scene out of that, I kept in. But well, you did you because know, you're like, I did who's not... giving the orders here? And he was like, "Well, I guess I just did." And like, I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." It's. I think all my scenes are good, but there's just too many of them, and you could just so easily. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I read it, and I'm like, the place where the my screenplay is the deadest is when he is at Cambridge. So obviously the Wittgenstein stuff snips right out, but I would hate to lose that. I love it. Also, his boyfriend at Cambridge snips right out. Yeah, that's because sort of... you can't have two... Actually, you have three boyfriends for him. You have Chris yes. Morcom, you have uh, James, and then you have Colin. And, and like the, the imitation game does these kind of things of like, there's Chris at the beginning, and then at the end when he's got this computer that he's like kind of after he's been kind of disgraced, he's working on a computer on his own. He calls the, the computer Christopher. And it's so movie-y, but it works. <laughs> it has no basis in reality. He didn't call that computer Christopher. But like that's the kind of the kind of almost dumb movie thing you have to do. Yeah, I almost feel like I it made a lot of the choices in the imitation game that were like not true to reality, but do make for a good movie. Like the fact that he's the one who like figured out that there was a Soviet spy among them, which is like not true at all. No, um, not true at all. <laughs> there were no Soviet spies in it, actually. Yeah, um, but but yeah. Like, but like, I I feel that I know more about Turing after reading yours, and I feel I have a more literary and sympathetic uh, portrait of him. I feel that if you could take your script and expand it to like a five episode netflix series yeah that might be the way to go your route of talking that's true i mean so when i structured my script it's not like i was completely unaware that a script should be about the solving of a large problem and it's not like i wasn't sympathetic to that but i was approaching it in an entirely philosophical way so the first scene in my movie once we go to the flashbacks is 14 year old alan turing is they're trying to find him because his parents have come to his school and he is in the forest searching in the forest to try to find a pine cone because he's been told by his teacher that the pine cones match the Fibonacci sequence. Yes. That the, the first order thing of the... is Alan enjoying. Uh, yes. These are the five E's. Something he never does in the imitation game. Yeah, yeah. So he's enjoying his uh, love of mathematics with the, the fur cone. And then when the student comes up to him and says like, hey, you know, what are you doing? Look at that pine cones. He explains another one, actually one of the seven E's. He explains yes. to the student what's going on. And then the student who fetches Turing, they have a clash of worldviews. They, they yes. both say their own philosophies, which is very good. It's very sophisticated. For one of your early screenplay, Turing says, some rules are simply made up. Others are true. Don't you want to know the difference? And that's his philosophy of discovery and honesty. And then the student says, you have to follow all the rules anyway. You know, that is the value of obedience. And you could have taken old Chumley's word for it, 
which is the authority. So there's a clash of values immediately. Um, and, and also, this is evaluate, another one of the seven E's, because Turing is implicitly evaluating and, and, and kind of like not liking the, the student's idea of how the world should work. So the screenplay is entirely structured around that scene. Yes. The screenplay is structured around the scene of which rules are true and which rules are just made up. Uh-huh. And the whole I, that was the whole reason Turing invented the computer was to answer that question. Would you and talk about in the Wittgenstein scene? That's what the Wittgenstein scene is about. That's what, you know, this is what his his radio debate with Jeffrey Jefferson, which was not in the movie, was about. His whole life, in my interpretation, was about that question. And it unified everything that happened to him in his yes. life with this debate about which rules are true and which ones are just made up. That is a very high-minded, highfalutin way of structuring a screenplay. <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing, there's another couple other statements of philosophy in here. Like another point, somebody says to him, why must you always tell everyone the truth instead of what they want to hear? Which might, and, or um, somebody says like, never rely on anybody else's methods. You always have to take everything back to first principles. It's almost like Matt talking to himself in a way. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, like, I, I think you, you have a lot of uh, kind of affinity to uh, Alan Turing because I think you, 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 I think you see yourself like this, right? Like, like you, you, you tell the truth instead of what people want to hear. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, that, that was sort of, yeah, I think I, I would not describe myself that way today, but I think that that was sort of the way I saw myself growing up. And, and also like, perhaps we can derive a rule from this. It's more, you know, you say the people should like state the rules that they live by. Maybe it's more effective to have other people state the rule that a character lives by because otherwise it sounds like grandstanding if you're like saying i always tell the truth and i never tell a lie then you're like uh you sound like a liar but if somebody says why can't you ever just tell a white lie then we trust it more yeah that's there, true there i think there might that's be a good, rule in that i think that's a good rule i think it's better to have other people say what uh you know other people who are annoyed say what the character's philosophy is i don't think it should and they be spin you know, it as a vice rather yes. than a virtue yes but I we that, the audience see it as a virtue Yes, I think that's an excellent point. I think that's good advice. And, and although, although he does at one point say, I see things as they really are, not the agreed upon reality everybody else sees. However, that's after like five different people telling him, stop <laughs> being an asshole and just go along with the agreed upon reality. And so we, we, we could, if that was the first thing he said, it would be one thing. But since yeah. it's like after five people like yell at him uh, for not thinking the way that they do, we're, we're a lot, we kind of like are inclined to let it go. Yeah. But it's funny, I feel like as we talk about this script, we're going to touch on every previous episode of this podcast, which is great because we have all these new listeners we're going to be hearing that are going to be hearing this episode and have never heard any episodes before. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because I now know what, you know, I think we both ended up going through and listening to all the old episodes of the podcast as part of doing the transfer to the network. And our very first episode was about if anybody's going to be reading your script, should you go through and take out the risible lines? It's called Channeling Master Thespian was the name yeah. of the episode. And it was all about, like, should you be very strict and tough on your script and try to imagine the worst possible way anyone could read one of your lines. And I disagree and then, 100%. And you disagreed 100%. This is all of our disagreements on this entire podcast flowed from that first disagreement where you said you should not take out the risible lines. Now, no, I, I didn't quite say that. I said that that's a way to, you can't write from fear. You have to write from confidence. There are in this script some risible lines, and I've thought about taking them out before I post it, but I'm not. The most, what do you think is the most risible line in the script, James? I didn't find any risible lines. Uh, so, I really like the script. 
my character, Neil Dixon, uh, discovers the life, you know, investigates the life of Alan Turing, is reporting back to his uh, commanding officer, C, and is saying, you know, like, oh, I've studied the life of Alan Turing. And then there's, so like, we're on page three or whatever. And he says, he really had dot, 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 a remarkable life, dot, dot, dot. And then we go into the flashback, which takes up the rest of the movie. And I think that's so risible. I used to love ellipses. And I thought they meant something than they actually mean. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and so I read that line and I'm like, he really had a remarkable line. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, that's so risible. I want to cut that. But I've decided to present this 2004 screenplay exactly as written and sent out and and loved. HBO loved this script. Uh, one uh-huh. of the big shots at HBO loved the script. A lot of people love the script. But I look back at it today and I feel like a lot of the lines are really risible you and nothing is more risible than that line. The eye skips right over that. He had, you look at it and say, he had a remarkable life and you, you don't even think about it. Only you, the screenwriter, think about that line at all. Like everybody else, the, number one, we just like edit out those ellipses. The, we just read it as he had a remarkable life, period. Like yeah. nobody thinks about that. One, one of the things I like about it is that you are kind of very genre-y at the very beginning. Like Dixon and Alexander, like the, the, like the investigator and his superior, they talk in the, this very kind of <laughs> like genre-y kind of way, like, uh, uh, yes, sir. I mean, it's, I mean, who was he? Talking about Turing and Alexander. Looks up, sneers. Nobody much. Just the man who won the war. And Dixon, won the which war, sir? I realize it may not get taught in the modern school rule, schoolroom anymore, but there was quite a big war with Germany a few years back. <laughs> Mr. Dixon. Dixon, yes, sir. My father was an admiral in that war. He might take issue with your evaluation of Mr. Turing. Then tell your father for me he can go to hell. All right. <laughs> it's risible. It's risible. No, it's not. I mean, it's risible. <laughs> but here's the thing. You you have to kind of like est- establish these broad strokes at, at the outset, you, you know, to show that you're capable of broad strokes. And then you can get uh, like kind of uh, subtle later on. But I think broad strokes at the beginning are good and ma- perhaps necessary. I think you talk about this like with like in like Breaking Bad, like the broad strokes of like the wife character or like yeah. you know Walter White character at first, and then and that just gets people okay. Here's broadly what's going on, and, and then we can make it you know you know subtle later. But it's it kind of like in the, in um uh, uh, Annihilation when they're talking about like we were all going to Area X, and like that yeah. that was like a very it was very like pulpy B movie science fiction trope. And they're talking about going to Area X, but it's a very literary and interesting and sophisticated novel. But they have to kind of work in broad strokes in the beginning just to situate you. Yeah. So it's not risible. I made it risable with the way I performed it. And that's why you're exactly what my entire point was in our first podcast. I know. And I I made it risible by by doing it stupidly, but a good actor could do that well. And I'm sure when Charles Dance or whatever. You, you know, did that in, in the imitation game. He did it well. Yeah. And Charles Dance was fantastic casting for Dennis Den in the imitation game. Now, both <laughs> in, in your movie, I mean, in your script and in the imitation game, Dennis Den is a bit of a twit, a bit of a bully, more in the imitation game than in yours. But the real Dennis Den was nothing like that. Like, he wasn't? No, he totally was. No, De- Dennis Den's family like, had a real problem with the imitation game. Oh, like, I'm sure they did. But Dennis Den was awful. Dennis Den, no, Dennis Den was... was it, any bio, any biopic writer, and certainly both me and Grandmore who wrote that movie, you love having people like Deniston. No, Deniston was a was a tr- 
what is tremendous villain. He was oh, really? uh, he was an awful person. I'm sure his family wasn't happy with the invitation game, but uh, but oh my god, he really did. You know, because like whenever you read a biopic of a scientist, you always sort of often you'll need to invent a character who's like, I don't think mankind should progress. I think that we should shut down mankind's progress, and it's sort of ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous. It's, it's, it's what the Manhattan Project was. It was General Leslie Groves and it was Robert Oppenheimer, which is the same tension, right? Denison made Groves look like the world's sweetest guy. He was <laughs> he was an awful human being. Anyway, okay. Um, so let, let's talk, like let's talk about the way that you got in. Like in Matt's in your script, like Turing's already working on a machine at the beginning, and the in, in I don't know page twenty or something. And the military offers him a job, but in mm-hmm. the imitation game. Turing is applying aggressively for the job. Like, which way was it really? He was recruited. They came okay. to Cambridge to recruit him. They they came to Cambridge and they asked the Dons. They said, you know, who is your best cryptography person? And they came to him and they were told it's Turing, but he's gay. So you probably won't want him. And then they came to Turing and they said, you know, we hear you're great at cryptography and we hear you're gay. And you, uh, we want you to come work for us and we want you to be straight. And Turing said, okay, you know, so so what I was saying before is that the whole bit with James just comes right out his lover at Cambridge James. But I was, I considered this guy to be obviously the great gay martyr of world history. And I wanted to show that he was in fact gay with a capital G and a little G, that he was someone who enjoyed being gay and had a wonderful open relationship where he made no attempt to hide he was gay, made no attempt to hide just trying to make out with this guy whenever. And the guy uh-huh. was like, no, you know, we need to hide this. And he was like, oh, right, right, right. I forgot about that. And I really did not want, and of course, Wick, Wittgenstein was also gay. Well, he was and, bisexual. But the only way I indicate that in my script is that he's gay is that he's wearing a leather jacket in class. Well, that was just uh, and what Wittgenstein actually did. He actually did that. So that was my one, uh, my one sort of coded language about Wittgenstein also being gay was him wearing the leather jacket. But it was just very important to me to show him being as gay as the day is long and to show that he was an out and proud, happy homosexual. He was not a tortured homosexual as you know, what's he interesting is about in this, though, the imitation game. In, in terms of like, like kind of 2020, like kind of politics, we would say like, yeah, he was able to be out and gay like that because of like a certain privilege that the upper classes had. You know what I mean? Oh, 2020, never change. You're adorable. <laughs> right, right, right. But I mean, but, I mean, it's, it, if we're going to talk about the vagaries of politics, let's talk about well, it, right? I mean, he was allowed to at Cambridge. Yes, at yeah. Cambridge, it was much more possible to be an out and proud homosexual. But then the problem is he tried to continue doing it in Manchester, which was this very working class town. And he did not, when he told the police in Manchester, like, oh, this guy broke into my house. It's because I had an affair with this guy. And then that guy told his friend and that guy then came and robbed my house. And the police in Manchester are like, the first line, by the way, I think of both movies is, what's this then? (laughs) (laughs) um, And then, you know, the Manchester police were like, you're gay. What's this then? Uh-huh. And they were like, uh, they were like, you're under arrest. And Turing was like, wait. And you know, he was used to the, pri- the yes, the level of privilege he had had at. It's Cambridge. an insight. I mean, don't be totally yeah. down on 2020. <laughs> it's an insight. Um, so in your uh, script, Alan Turing is immediately in charge once he gets to Bletchley. He's explaining things to people uh, about uh, you know the Enigma machine and stuff like that. Whereas in the Imitation Game, he's loathed, and then by his coworkers, and then by ingenuity and moxie, he wins the role of leadership. And learns how to work with others. So yes. it, yours, I suppose, is more accurate, but maybe the imitation game is more movie-y again. Yes. 
very much. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're going to expand the solving of the enigma into an entire movie, if you're going to spend most of the movie focused on the period from, you know, 1938 to 1942, then you've got to add more conflict to that period. You've got to cram all the conflict of his life into that period. And they did it by not having him come in as the chief of the project from the beginning and have him come in as the reject asshole of the group. And boy, in that movie, they just keep saying bastard, asshole, (laughs) monster. You know, it's these are these. And, you know, and the movie definitely takes the view in the end that he was a monster. Like, you know. Oh, very much. The Imitation Game is all about this monster. It's all about how, like, well, you know, he was a monster, but he was the only monster who could have won the war. But you know, and the number one thing this monster is about him. No, he, but movie, he learns his lesson, and he and he comes and he brings those people around, and they all stand up for him. I don't think it puts him across as a monster. I think it puts him across as like what he wasn't, which like I think there's no evidence that he was like some weirdo didn't know how to get along with people. Like it, it like most people say, oh, we got along with him very well. You know, he was. You know, he, he was very companionable in the movie. They make him house. In the movie, they, he brings people around. He learns how to be a good manager. And then they stick up for him when Deniston wants to shut it down. I don't think that the movie presents him as a monster. I think you're misrepresenting No, him. no, 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 no. This is a quote from the movie that at the end of the movie, he dumps Joan not because he's an out and proud homosexual. He dumps Joan because he's afraid that she will be caught up in Soviet spy games, which were entirely invented for the movie. And so then he says, okay, I'm going to dump you and I'm going to claim, you know, nobly and heroically, I'm going to claim it's not because I'm worried that you'll be injured by Soviet spies. I'm going to say, oh, it's because I'm gay. And then she says, you know, it's true what they say about you. You are a monster. And he gets this look on his face. He gets this look on his face where he is clearly saying, it's true. I am. I am a monster. No, that's that's not it at all. Like, the the way it is, is like, he kind of falls on his sword and he does the ultimate, which even though he's not, doesn't want to be married to her, he's not attracted to her, he does care for her and like her. And they've spent a lot of companionable time together. But he feels that because of this awful choice has been given to him, he has to renounce this little intimacy that he has with her for this larger good. And she calls him a monster and like, he's not a monster, but he has to take it. Yeah. I think that I watch that movie and I'm like, yes, in this movie, he is a monster. Well, he I is disagree hundred percent. It uh, is that they are showing that he is someone who is an well, asshole, a, a bastard that he no, is he's a reformed asshole. I, I disagree with this. I, I don't okay. think that's right. Um, so let's talk about when, when he's introduced. So we talked about how he's enjoying himself and then he's explaining himself and he's evaluating. We also have, Alan has some experience with economics in a way we haven't seen before, dealing with the strikers who have stopped his train to school. You want to talk about that scene and why you put well, it? In- talk about exercise. Talk about your, your 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting to that. We're getting to that. We're getting to that. <laughs> I've got but, a whole, we're, we're going all out of order here, but yeah, I've got a whole hell of a lot of exercise in my yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Let's we're- see this chronologically. <laughs> but, um, like, wh- wh- I want to know why you brought up like the, 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 the strikers, a general strike into this. Was, that, was that, a, that was a real thing? I just yeah, I just wanted to start with some real exercise. So he okay, gets into so yeah, let's talk about he this. gets he gets into Sherburne, his boarding school, after being told he would never get in because he was too stupid and he had too little respect for religion. He gets in after all, but then he's told, Oh, a general strike's on the big nineteen, I guess this would be nineteen twenty five general strike. And so the unions are only letting the milk train through and he cannot get the train, he cannot get to Sherburne. And then he decides to bicycle across England to get yeah. to school. 
And he goes on a that's one of the E's, the the, the exercise bicycle ride. To and I did regret the imitation game did not have his bicycle, his wonderful bicycle, which is throughout my script. And he, it was a beloved part of his life. And so he then rides this bicycle forty eight hours straight, essentially, to get to school on time. And then shows up and is sort of a hero at the school because they've called ahead. Uh, the parents have called ahead to let them know that he was going on this. It couldn't be right more together. different in the imitation game in which he's reviled at the school from the very beginning and, and relentlessly bullied. Yes. And, and which in yours, I, like he, he, he's a hero and then he just kind of settles in and there's no kind of, although like some of the things that they talk about in the imitation game did happen. Some boys did, you know, try to like bury him alive and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I watched the imitation game. Like, did that happen? I don't remember that happening. That just wasn't my story. I was telling, but uh, I, I'm not saying it didn't. I don't, I don't remember. But um, I, that wasn't the story I was telling. But yeah, so a massive amount of exercise <laughs> that you know, and I was very much aware when I was writing it. Like, oh, people are going to love this. People are going to love this guy who bicycled for 48 hours straight in order to get to school on time. Yeah, you know what I loved about yours that was not in imitation game. In and I suppose I, I'm guessing this is true is that his love of Disney movies. Yes, which is I think also a big part of it's a big part of being gay and it's a big part of enjoying life. That this was a guy who loved Disney movies, who and- loved. And it keeps coming up. And it, keeps, and it comes back in the most ironic and sad way when he eats a poisoned apple at the end. Yes. He um, was, he was, uh, he did indeed sing at Cambridge. He would sing, put the poison, you know, put the apple in the brew, let the poison draft seep through. He loved that scene and uh, eventually decided to kill himself in that way. So, but, I, um, I, so we're up to page 19 and we see Turing pick up a pine comb. And his parents say that he's brilliant, although the teacher doesn't think he's brilliant. But we don't have much more after that to show that he's smart until many pages later. But I kind of think it's almost good, maybe not in a movie way, but maybe in a human way. It's more human portrayal of Turing than the imitation game. He acts like a real person, not the smartest person in the room who's fully formed, springing out of the head of Zeus, uh, the way it is in the imitation game. And there's trade-offs in this. Like, I feel I have a deeper relationship with the Turing in your script than I do than the Turing in the movie. But I, I wonder if just one thing is more movie Yes, <laughs> it's very, yes, I certainly would agree with that. I think my movie is a deeper and richer character, but is much less movie-y. He is, it doesn't really feel like a movie. Uh-huh. Let's talk about the way that the Joan relationship is handled. Do you want to talk about that for a while? Yeah, you know, so the one... I invented two characters in my script. I invented Neil Dixon, who was investigating the case for the British Secret Service at the A uh, in the framing sequence, and I invented the lover who he cheats on Joan with. So in both Colin. the imitation game, Colin, I invented Colin in both the imitation game and in my script and in real life. There is a woman who is assigned to work at Bletchley. It's funny. So both the author of The Imitation Game and myself were like, oh, this is such a great story that they hired people through putting a crossword puzzle through, they hired people through having people come to Bletchley for a crossword puzzle competition. And that's how they hired some people to work on the project. Uh, But then none of the people who they hired that way actually be entered the history books. And so both me and that writer were like, oh, well, that's unfair. We have to have one of these people become a major character in the in the script. And so they attributed that to Joan. That's not how Joan was actually hired. I attributed that to a character I created named Colin because I was like, he's got to cheat on Joan. He's got to go ahead and, you know, have a gay affair while he is engaged to Joan. Yeah, in, in Did he case, do that? I cannot say he did not do that. Uh-huh. I cannot say he did do it. There is some indication that he did. There is some indication 
that he got in trouble at Bletchley for engaging in homosexual activity. We do have that indication. Mm -hmm. We do not have any indication of who it was or what name or no name has come down through history to us. Well, I mean, in both cases, you erase uh, Gordon Welchman, who was a person who actually constructed the machine with uh, Turing. And he's not named in either your script or the movie. And Gordon Welchman is a guy who recruited Joan Clark uh, to be part of the team. Yeah, he cut for time. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. Like in, in the movie, um, like basically Turing kind of thinks of the machine all on his own and kind of just makes it happen. And all these other dumb dumbs uh, can't get on board with his brilliance, and he kind of makes them see the light. But in your uh, script, it's more of a team effort, and he's kind of like uh, gets along with people better. And I have a feeling that's how he really was from all. Oh, the that's reports. very much how it really was. He worked very closely with everybody, and you know, in their greatest achievement that they achieved at Bletchley, one can make the argument. They achieved while Turing was out of town that uh, they invented, they did the Colossus, which was really the first thing you could argue that the first real computer that was ever invented in the world was the Colossus, which was invented by Turing's colleagues when he had been sent to America. And, you know, as he says in my script, you know, you invented the infinite spool of tape. You have invented a way to, they brought in people from the telephone company to figure out how to bounce signals back and forth across transistors. Um, transistors, is that the word I'm looking for? Anyway, bounce signals back and forth electronically in order to make machines think. And he was, he worked very closely with the other boys of Hut 4. And in fact, he, or Hut 8, I guess it was, well, they they were, they were at various times in Hut 8 and Hut 4 and Hut 1. But yes, Hut 8, uh, most of the breakthroughs were done in Hut 8. He worked very closely with the other boys and eventually the girl in Hut 8. And of course, that's another thing in my script is that when Joan joins them, I don't remember if this was true from history, but I couldn't resist having somebody point out saying that it was like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh-huh. And which, so one of many, many times that comes up in my screenplay. Yes. So I uh, actually, uh, something funny, uh, in terms of anachronisms, on page 42, you have Turing say the word newbies, which not a word oh, back no. then. Oh, really? Not a word. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I know that when Tony Kushner wrote the movie Lincoln, he went through and for every single word in that screenplay, he looked it up in the OED to see if that word had been introduced yet in 1865 when that movie was set. And uh, I did not do that. Well, I mean, I, I didn't, but I didn't do that. But newbies l- jumped out because I didn't never heard that movie that that word until I was like twenty two years old or something. You were twenty two years old in nineteen eighteen, James. <laughs> yeah, I'm an old man. I, actually, I hung out with Turing, and you got it kind of <laughs> right. You know, he was a good guy. <laughs> And he was a monster. He was a kind and considerate <laughs> lover. So, so yeah. So the Colin Allen affair didn't happen in real life, I, I guess. Uh, but that's a, that's a good addition. That's a movie-like addition. But here's the thing: when Allen breaks the news to Joan that, like, you know, so you're kind of like down on the imitation game because you're saying, oh, you know, he breaks the news to Joan and he's kind of like, she says, you're a monster, and he kind of takes it and he kind of is a monster. And I don't agree with that that take. But when you in your script, when Allen breaks the news to Joan. You don't do dialogue. You just show it in images, like overseen by another character, Q. And I think that is you felt um, overwhelmed by the drama of that scene. You couldn't do it, and you shied out. You were a coward, and you didn't write it. And that was a waste of a great scene. An actor loves a scene like that. And yeah, actors love scenes like that. No, I thought that uh, I thought I'd already um, accomplished it. I thought I'd already accomplished the emotion of that scene, and it would have been redundant to actually have the scene. Okay. Uh, I, I think, I mean, the, the scene in the imitation game is like one of the most memorable scenes. 
Uh, and they, they make it physical with like the, the, the wire being the ring, uh, like he uses a piece of like electronic wire to yeah. make a, a Jerry rig wing. Is, is that real or, um, I don't remember. I, I saw an invitation game. I'm like, that's great. I don't know if that's real. I don't I remember mean, if that that's was great true. because it makes things physical as you say. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in the imitation game Turing, so this is where I like about yours imitation game Turing simply proposes to Joan to solve the problem of the propriety of her working yes. with them in your script. There's a real relationship that forms between them outside the confines of, of mere work. He does like and appreciate her, uh, but he comes out and honestly admits this homosexuality, and she's accepting of it. She says, oh, my brother ex- explained about you Cambridge types. Uh, uh, but in yeah. that scene, it's great because you got all kinds of great scene-like things. Like when they're having this conversation, they're kind of playing chess together. So there's objects to move around. There's kind of like a subtext you can do with objects. And then, of course, they're waiting for the machine to finish doing its process. So that's kind of a ticking clock, and it could be like C-3PO coming in and, and telling <laughs> Han Solo and, and, and Princess Leia to stop kissing. You, you know, uh, um, it, it, so it, there's all kinds of great scene things happening there, which, and it's much more emotionally resonant than I feel the imitation game was, and more true to life, and that's how real human emotions are. Uh, thank you. You don't want to take a victory lap over that? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I should say at some point here that my biggest mistake Essentially, this whole podcast, we're talking about like, oh, what was my mistake that kept my script from being made and let this script be made? My biggest mistake was uh, this script won $10,000 from the Sloan Foundation. And that's one reason the script is so sciencey is I was writing it to win a science award. Uh-huh. Later, I wrote Involuntary to try to win the same award again, which mm-hmm. was kind of so, kind of <laughs> selfish of me. And that's why that one is so sciencey. But this time I did win the award and I got $10,000 from it. And I just was like, great, I'll spend it. And what I should have done was at the time, the only, the, I say the only, the only full in-depth comprehensive biography of Alan Turing was out of print and had been out of print for many years. And I assume that nobody had optioned it. And if I had gone out in 2004 and said, I'm going to take this $10,000 and contact Alan Hodges, who wrote this book, and try to option this book and say, like, I've got $10,000, I want to option your book. Then later, when these producers came along and said, we want to make a movie about Alan Turing, then what they did is they did what you're supposed to do. They optioned the book and then they hired a screenwriter. Um, Graham Moore was hired. They hired him as an assignment to write this movie mm. because they had optioned the book and they said, Wait, wait they hired hire... him as an assignment and he'd never written a screenplay before? Yeah. Well, how did he get that gig? I mean, I don't think he'd never written a screenplay before. He just never had his movie produced before. Okay. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure about any of this. So if I had gone and taken that $10,000 and optioned the book then everyone said oh we're not gonna make it because he's gay or we don't like your script enough then when those producers came along later to go like we want to option this book we want to make this movie they would have found out like oh shit this fucker in new york (laughs) has the rights so we have to agree to work with him and i would have said hey good news i would have said good news i've already got a script and you should make it and then if they had said no we don't like this we don't want him to be that gay focus the whole movie on butchery we want to do this we want to do that i could have rewritten my script match that or I could have said, it's okay, have somebody else rewrite it. Or I could have just oh sold them the rights. Don't, but... don't lie. It would have been fade in. Turing <laughs> is making out with three women. Um... <laughs> yeah. I would have been like, just show me where the money is and it'll be as straight as you want them to be. <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about like what you do better than the imitation game. Like, There's a great scene on pages 67 to 69. Uh, Turing is working at Bletchley Park. He's essentially winning the war. He has a yes. brother that um, is actually fighting in the war. Now, you've had him humiliated before in that, like, 
he takes a room, uh, you know, near Bletchley Park, and the the uh, the you know the the landlady says, "Huh, must be nice for you, prof- professorial types. You get to hang out here while you know other people are fighting and dying in France." And he can't tell her, you know. And in fact, like his the the project he's working on is like humiliatingly called like what the the golf. yeah it was it was called the GCCS, which was the Government Code and Cipher School, and then the they were so then he was told <laughs> he was told like oh no you can't tell people you're working for the Government Code and Cipher School, and they're like so tell people it's the golf club and golf club and chess society, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> tell people that's what GCCS stands for, and so then you know he's telling people everybody throughout Turing's entire life people assume that he shirked off in the war. And that started there in my script. Yeah, so that's a good social humiliation. But another, like, scathing social humiliation is, is like, so, like, they crack, like, between sort of between 60 and 65, which is, like, you know, the the exact midpoint of the book. This is the meeting of the goddess in the Dan Harmon conception. Uh, You have, it's the emotional high point. You have solved the problem, right? Uh, Yes. Or it's a a false solution. So, you see, this kind of just shows that, like the, these structures are real, and even when you don't know them, you're unconsciously oh, yeah. reproducing them. Uh, um, and so, um, so the, you get the high point, and then what must happen next? What Dan Harmon calls the atonement with the father, <laughs> the suffering. I think that if Raglan thought that anybody was going to try to write a story based on his 22 points, that he would kill himself. I don't think <laughs> Raglan wanted any want anybody to go like, okay, yes, sir, Mister Raglan, I will go ahead and hit those 22 points. Yeah, but Dan Harmon doesn't feel that way. So, yeah. uh, um, so you do a great thing on page 67 and 69, which Turing returns home with fiance and his family pities him because it doesn't, they say, oh my gosh, they've. It's it's so shameful they've given him women's work because he can't tell them what they've been doing. He's like, oh, I just working. I'm working with this woman. And it's especially ironic they give him a woman's work because they, at the end they're literally making him into a woman by giving him estrogen shots. Uh, yes. Um, but I, I but so that that's a, a really I can see that like you know families around the table and kind of you know jealousies and and pride and and, and things like that and social interactions. It's very movie-y. Although your Turing is so saint-like that like. Joan has to feel it all for him because he's like, well, got to give it up, you know, to defeat Hitler. You know, like he doesn't really seem to feel it in your screenplay. He he feels it very much, but but he was literally a saint. He never told anybody. He never once told anybody what he had done in the war because he was ordered not to. And he died to keep that secret. Right. And he was the most self-sacrifice he was one of the most self-sacrificing persons <laughs> in world history and yeah. he was he was the ultimate gay martyr he is the ultimate martyr of the cold war he yeah. was cuz eventually one thing one of the many things that is not in the imitation game is that they kept the work at Bletchley Park secret as part of this whole ridiculous scheme to trick the colonies. Yeah, this, they were is, like, this is way too much stuff to front to backload into your end of your script. I was just <laughs> kind of like, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, it's true. And like looking back in your script, I was like, that was interesting. And he kind of makes a, a, a point of like standing up to it. But like at that point, things have to be winding down, not getting more complicated. Uh, I think it was important. I think it's important to say that, that, you know, why was this all kept secret? It's because of this. They intended to give 
the Enigma machines to their rebelling <laughs> colonies and go like, hey, you can keep secrets with us with these Enigma machines. And then they would secretly keep Butchley going to break this messages being yeah. sent by their own colonies so they could spy on their own colonies, which is just infuriating. Yeah. And I couldn't resist including it. So um, I couldn't resist. It might be your uh, <laughs> tip off that you shouldn't have. <laughs> uh, um, so um, I do, here's another thing that I feel is more movie-y and, than the imitation game. You have a great action scene on page 83 that a bunch of like uh, brave soldiers have to get an enigma machine and some documents out of a sinking u-boat and, and like some guys die and they, there's some heroics it's a good action movie scene maybe to break up all the fussy british people who are sitting around being smart uh, or, or, or do you think that breaks the tone what, what do you I think, think about that i scene? mean i think that that imitation game did a better job of that than i did like they kept cutting away it was really done on the cheap because they just kept cutting away to uh newsreel footage but they kept finding ways to show what was going on with the blitz and with horrors of the war than i did but i sort of saved it all up for that scene and that scene was you know i've always been someone you know my parents when i was growing up used to say to me my dad would say to me many times matt I just really love it when you say fuck you to me. It really, it makes me feel like a great father every time you say fuck you to me because it lets me know I'm being a great father and I'm raising a son who can be honest about his emotions. And I just want to say that that means so much to me. And if you want to know how I ended up to be such a (laughs) fucked up person, that (laughs) is my origin story. (laughs) Because I've spent my entire life saying fuck you to people and expecting them to then say, Matt, I think it's wonderful that you just said fuck you to me. And I just want to say how much I appreciate that. And yet, after I left home, nobody appreciated it. And Until uh, you met me. (laughs) Until you met me. The one person in the world who takes that and turns it to gold. (laughs) So that scene was my fuck you to the movie. What was the movie called? U257? What was it called? Oh, man, you're saying fuck you to somebody and nobody even understands what you're saying fuck you to. Um, that was a movie where they showed Americans capturing the Enigma machine. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a Matthew McConaughey movie called U578 or something, uh-huh. U257, U something like that, where they showed Americans capturing the Enigma machine, which infuriated the actual British people who had captured the Enigma machine. Uh-huh. And so I felt like I had to include that scene. Yes, so we could have some action. Yes, so we could actually see some World War II. And also so I could say fuck you to that movie. And uh, <laughs> and as always, nobody said that how much they appreciated me saying fuck you. <laughs> that, that is a, a very interesting hidden history of that scene. So one thing that The Imitation does better, however, in a movie sense, is that once they crack the code, then the uh, Turing immediately says, wait a second, we can't use it all the time or else the Germans would know. Now you do this in a sense in yours, but like much later on in the script in a more attenuated way, but in the way they do it in the imitation game, there are personal stakes that are false. This didn't really happen because one of the people who is on the code breaking team has a brother or something on a ship that's slated to be attacked in literally 20 minutes. We have to make a decision right now. Are we going to use this or not? And Alan Turing is saying, no, I'm sorry, we can't. Uh, um, and so it, it's very kind of like, oh, it, it, it is, that's very it is brilliant. Drama. It, it is very movie-like drama. It's very brilliant. So like, you know, in my script, it is, I was honest about the fact that they broke, of course, they broke the Adungma over the course of a year. And at first they figured out how, you know, once they cracked the Enigma, they were able to solve ultra transcripts over the course of a month. And then they were like, well, let's see if we can get down to three weeks. Let's see if we can get down to two weeks. Let's see if we can get down to a week. Okay, let's see if we can do it on the same day. And then eventually, a year after they'd cracked it, they got to the point where they could you know, actually crack messages on the same day. And you see that in my script. This movie was like, they crack it, and then instantly he overhears something in a bar that allows him to crack it. He runs to his bomb 
uh, B-O-M-B-E, the machines that cracked the Enigma, and they put it in instantly, instantly. <laughs> they were able to crack literally every single Enigma message in the world within five minutes of him having this revelation. And that's it. And just never again in the movie is it a problem at all. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea that you actually needed. And then they put Alan in charge of, which he wasn't in charge of, deciding when the information should be used and when it should not be used. And it's brilliant movie making. It is makes so much more sense as a movie. And then, yes, of course, instantly you have a member of his team. It's like, my brother will die if we don't use this information instantly. And he says, no, your brother has to die because he's a monster. He says, no, that your brother has to die. And I will be responsible for the death of your brother because I know we need to protect this information and not overuse it. And that doesn't make him a monster brilliant. because he's he's looking out for the the higher good. He's a saint in his own way in that movie. In that, like he knows that many, many, many more people will be saved if he lets this brother of the person he knows die, and he's willing to fall on that sword and be called an asshole for more people. Like, you know, he's willing yeah. to have this social awkwardness. So I don't think that he's a monster in the movie, um, and I think that you are misrepresenting the movie. I disagree. And, I, thought that, you know, I thought we would have no disagreements today. I thought and, I came here to praise you and say how much I liked your script. And yet, for some reason, you're saying, fuck you, dad, to me. <laughs> <laughs> what? Don't you like that? Don't you like that? Isn't it good that I said that? It, it's strange. Our, our, our friendship is based on it in a way. Um, <laughs> but, um, in, in the, I mean, I, the thing is, you found the one person in the world who can take it. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I did. No, I, I, no I, he totally... Kudos to Graham Moore. Sure, go ahead and, you know, movies don't do ramp downs well. They don't do like, okay, we've gotten over the crest of the hill and now let's very gradually coast down the hill after we've gotten over the crest of the hill. Movies aren't supposed to do that. Movies are supposed to go, we're going up the hill, 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 uh, we're at the crest of the hill, and plunge back down on the other side of the hill. Mm -hmm. And we never have to worry about this problem again after we have our eureka moment, after we have our breakthrough. And that was how they did it in the imitation game. And I say more power to him. That is how movies are supposed to work. That is what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to do what I did, which is tell the truth about how problem solving actually works. And you do show that it is a very gradual process. Yeah, you do broach the uh, the, the the topic. You say like on page eighty six or something. Say, well, are we deliberately sending some of the people that are deaf? But it's not made personal. It's, it's kept general. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and so. Um, so maybe I mean maybe this is a case in which like you say like look problem uh, telling stories is just about uh, outlining the 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 steps of solving a problem but it's not really right because there's more to like it's also about like how people feel about things step by step it's, it's not about just the steps of solving a large problem it, that doesn't exhaust right. what stories well, I mean. In my book, I talk about how it's the emotional steps of solving large problems. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's part of it. But yeah, no, it's I'm going to give it up to them. So uh, here's where uh, I think yours is masterful. It was like, okay, so you have this, you do have this wind down, but this is like the last half of Raglan's thing. You have this denouement that's kind of like, like he kind of falls in grace. So he like first he kind of like Turing himself is sailing on the Atlantic. And he talks to a midshipman, and he sees how all their ideas were worth it, right? He says, like, oh, right. it used to be terrible here. We also used to get blown up, and now we're not. And, of course, Turing can't tell him, uh, that was because of me. And so he's kind of, like, in savoring his victory for a while. And then the, they, we see them, 
with the surrender message. Like, and, they, and the great thing with the surrender message is like, they didn't even bother to encrypt it. Is that that's true? Great, it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. so that, the, the, those, the, these are great. And this, I think your script really comes into its own at the end here, even though this is a part that maybe is least likely to be made into a movie. I really enjoyed it because, of course, it was this Polish guy who originally uh, made up the, the kind of predecessor machine to what Turing was working on. And Turing had heard about him and thought he was dead. But in fact, he was alive and living in England, and your uh, guy, who was it, Tiltman or uh, yeah, the, uh, Tiltman. yeah, it goes and like shows him like, look, this Polish guy was living here all along. Why didn't we use him? Well, we can't trust him. And look, and this is the one of those great kind of statements of principle or philosophy. Uh, your country needed you, Mister Turing. Don't confuse that with your country wanting you. And of course, uh, I hate that one. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> just no, no, write, okay. just say your country needed you, but they never wanted you. That's oh, okay. so much better. Okay, that's fine. But that's a point in which the wizard chants the magic spell that causes you to wake up from your dream and everything starts going downhill like in a David Lynch movie. Because, um, you know, he's Hugh comes to hang out with them and like they're having this very good conversation in the pub and then the pub owner chases them out because he thinks that Alan Turing is chatting up uh, Hugh, you know, uh, as some, uh, another, uh, uh, you know, homosexual conquest. And, and then like he's kind of like, he has this proto computer. He's got a job. Where he's having radio debates, and he's getting the better of like Sir Jeffrey Jefferson. Um, and and then there's the aftermath, and he's listening. Somebody says you should listen to yourself on the radio, and when it's rebroadcast, he's like, "Yeah, I will." And then he goes, but he listens to himself alone, and it's quite touching. And then the decline of Turing, the way you write it, is almost unbearable. Like, but it's true to the, exp- the that expanded decline of the Jedi form. And then in the Imitation Game, the person who shows up at the end in his apartment is Joan. But in yours, it's Sarah, the mother who shows up in his apartment to see how far he's kind of fallen. And then his security clearance is revoked and then he eats the apple. Um, So which do you think is more effective, the the mother or Joan showing up? You know, I went back and forth on my screenplay because Joan did show up. Joan did come and visit him. And I decided that, again, in mine, it was heroic. (laughs) I mean, in mine, him deciding to stop the one brief period in his life where he lived in the closet was when he was at Bletchley. And then him deciding he wasn't going to live in the closet at Bletchley anymore was a heroic moment in my script. And I decided that having Joan come back, that she was there to sort of be someone who was sort of triumphed over. She was there to be someone who represented the straight life, the closeted life, and that he went back to being out and proud and triumphed over the closeted life. So I didn't want to have her come back. But it is a very good scene in The Imitation Game where she comes back. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this was a shorter script. The Imitation Game, it took out his mother. I think he had a wonderful relationship with his mother, and his mother wrote the first biography of him and was a wonderful person. I liked having her in my script. But when you take her out, then it just makes sense to bring Joan back and have her there in the imitation game. So well, that was probably more time probably for the best. He spent more time with Joan in the story, you know, even though you have a more intense relationship with your mother, maybe than the person that you kind of like were briefly engaged with, like, like in terms of like the audience who they see more of, it's going to be Kira Knightley rather right. than, yeah. Uh, um, well, in the movie, I mean, the thing I didn't like about the movie is they made it seem like it was tragic that these two couldn't be together which I think is just sort of an obscene thing to say about the great gay martyr of British history and one of the great gay martyrs of world history is to say it was tragic that he couldn't be happy with this woman. And but you no, know, she was like, yeah, we could be unconventional. That. We could both have jobs and I would let you go be gay, she more or less says. And we, yeah. and we could help each other out. And she was like offering a partnership that, you know, according to like what was possible, socially possible at the time was the best that they could do. She wanted to work. 
he wanted to be gay. They found a way to make it work together. And I think that was a real meeting of the minds. I think you're misrepresenting the movie it, 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 because you want to make it something that it's not. Uh, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, I, I think I think that there, there there was a meeting of the minds, and I think it's more tragic. There was a meeting of the minds, and that he puts it aside because of some kind of misdirected kind of loyalty to the British state. It's not misdirected if you're gay to not marry a woman. That's not misdirected. But but here's but the people make do in the social situations they have, and there have been many marriages of convenience in which people have been able to you know have their social cake and eat their sexual cake too. And people have like found arrangements, and they, you're you're saying it's from the point of view of like, oh well, every, you know, everybody can be out and proud, and there's no, and there's no problem nowadays. Why couldn't they do it back then? And back then, it was a very much more difficult problem. Even though Alan Turing was kind of much more straightforward about it, I think a lot of people who had more prudence thought, okay, look, I don't like the way the world is structured, but I'm going to find a way to make it work in my life. And you know, I I don't think that those people are cowards. I think those people were just kind of living their life the best way. No, not at all cowards. I think that, you know, no, I would never say that. But I just well, think don't say it's an outrage if, you know, if it was going to if he was going to have some kind of marriage of convenience with somebody in which they it both would not have been an outrage at all. It's just something he never would have done. Uh-huh. And it's something that it's not tragic that he didn't do that. It's mm-hmm. not tragic. That is heroic. I uh-huh. think that, yes, it is not something that it I'm not saying that... It emotionally tragic, but it, it, it's tragic in terms of principles, but I think it is emotionally tragic. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it is emotionally heroic to not marry a woman if you're gay. And yes, it did have negative consequences for his life, you could argue, but I think it also had positive consequences for his life. And I think that he died because bastards killed him. Yeah. And he did not die because he made tragic mistakes. I think killing himself was a tragic mistake, you but will, come on, will. he had been chemically castrated. He had been, right, exactly. you know, he was living a, a shadow of his former life. And but I think that you have to yeah. keep, I mean, he is not, I wanted to make this a story that is not about the tragedy of Turing's choices. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make this a story about the tragedy of what happened to him. Right. Okay. So, so basically though, like in yours, your screenplay is about the solving of technical problems mostly. And somebody who just can't understand why society can't keep up with him. Whereas, I would say it's I'd say it's fundamentally about the solving of philosophical problems, and okay. then on a scene by scene level, so you know it's about the it's about the solving of one big philosophical problem: which are is? rules real or are they just made up? Uh-huh. And then he devoted his whole life to solving that philosophical problem, and then within that, it's a series of I think it's too reductive to say technical problems, but yes, it's a series Wait, of they talk about you know, technical problems the entire brilliant. time. Brilliant, I can't remember brilliant. anything that they talk about rotors or, or, or wires or whatever. They're technical problems. Don't try to worm your way out of that. Uh, I, you'd be amazed at what I can worm my way out of. <laughs> uh, um, they're, they're technical problems. They're solving technical problems. You're talking about the Enigma machine. But that sounds so lame. I don't care how it sounds. I'm just trying to talk about the truth. Hey, look, I'm Turing now. All right. So whereas <laughs> in the imitation game, it's mostly emotional problems about like, how well can Turing work with others? Can he work well with others in time to solve the problem? It's given that he's going to solve the technical problem. We don't have to follow him step by step through that. Or if we do, we do it in just the most kind of notional way. But yeah. like the, the real journey is like, can this guy get it together to make people feel good about themselves or, or manage them, right? Yeah. And, and, and th- th- that's the difference between the two. Yeah, one of any. No, I, I mean, I mean, but if we're going to talk about on the, on the 30,000 foot level, 
and 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 one is about the solving of of, of a problem, which is the imitation game, and yours is about the the rise and fall of a uh, of a of a legend. Yeah, that's that's a good way of summing it up. All right, I've said my piece then. Okay, is that the whole episode? Well, no, I, I, I could talk about this for a long time longer, but I, I've, I've exhausted my notes. Great. I think that's our episode. Great. You know, we're going to have to put out more episodes and I'm going to have to spend less time editing them. I mean, no, I'm going to have to edit this episode, but I'm going to spend less time editing it. Well, so that's great. Well, I thank you so much for reading the script and thank you for encouraging me to finally watch The Imitation Game because it was a very painful, touchy subject for me and seeing it, you know, and the number one thing I felt like when I saw The Imitation Game is I'm like, oh, right. The number one reason I wrote this screenplay was not to get rich and was not to win an Oscar, but because I thought this was a story that deserved to be told. That sounds mm-hmm. very idealistic and naive, but that really was. I I'm sure the, the story felt that way too, though, right? As I'm sure he did. And as soon as I discovered the story, I'm like, oh my God, this is a story that needs to be told. This is a story that should be out in the world. And it did get in the, out in the world and it did get told. And it's great that it won an Oscar. And it's great that it was a big deal screenplay. And it's great that a lot of people saw the story. And I don't feel like it's obscene that this is the version of the story they saw. I feel like this is not the version of the story I told. I feel like there were things that did offend me about this movie, but I felt like ultimately it's not an offensive film. Ultimately, it's not a savage injustice to Alan Turing. I feel like it could have been more just. I feel like it could have been more responsible. Certainly, the movie did come under tremendous criticism for refusing to show him acting gay in any way and only referencing his homosexuality in negative ways. I think that even at the time this movie came out, it would be even more so today. That was seen as unacceptable and not cool. Let let, let me uh, revise my comments. I saw the movie when it came out, and then I just read the script again this past week. So I guess I can't speak to the movie itself. You know what I mean? Like it, there yep. might be like the ways that things are performed and things like that, that might've made it more, Oh, he's a monster or, you know, the gay stuff is bad that I did not see in the script, but maybe it was performed that way or musical cues or camera angles or whatever. Yeah. Made it and I do that think way. that is an element. I do think that was scored that way. Okay. And Cumberbatch did perform it that way. But I do think, but the story deserves to be told. The story has been told. People know nowadays when I tell people, like, I wrote a screenplay about during the people are like, oh, the imitation game. And I'm like, yes, okay, you know who he is. Good. You know that movie. And I think that's wonderful. And oh, you know, wait, so I, I you, did... you, you you try to make them think that you won an Academy Award? No, no, and, and no. Now take my screenwriting uh, a kind of a note service. I won an Oscar for the education game. <laughs> exactly. No, I uh, no. It's a great story. It's a great. You everybody, my brother made... Brad Bird. <laughs> <laughs> I think every writer. I think every person needs to have that origin story. Every person needs to have that story of everybody's got some story they'll tell you in a bar about how like, oh, I actually had the idea for, you know, clothes hangers, but then somebody else stole the idea and they made a million dollars. And, uh, you know, I, I all my patents I filed for clothes hangers uh, got ignored. And I think everybody has that story to a certain extent. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. All right. I don't have that story, but uh, I'm glad that you have yours. <laughs> All right. So yeah, this this was the this was the flashback to Matt's origin story episode. If I am already a hero to you, I'm sure this was fascinating to you. If I am not one of your heroes, and really, why the hell not? Then this may not have been as interesting to you. But I think this is a good episode. We're not gonna do a free story idea this episode. I think we're already going to one. Uh yeah. This whole thing was a free story idea. Free feel free to be the other person desperately be the third person desperately trying to sell an Alan Turing screenplay. Okay, James, I'll see you much sooner than we used to do them. We did it! We did it. <laughs>
Okay. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hand and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.